Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. The folks who are watching live um, may already know, because we had posted ahead of time, that Dr. Ryan Gray is taking a couple days vacation, yep. but um, it will still have our dean you know, the title of the show is Ask the Dean and our right. Dean in Residence. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Dr. Scott Wright is still here. Uh, and uh, and I'm here. I know some stuff too. Of course, too. <laughs> you do indeed. You do indeed. So we're definitely still open to have a good session and answer as many of your questions as we can. Yep. Uh, and I'll take a look here. And uh, looks like we've got our first question. Let me see if it can post. All right. So we've always got a few questions that can't post because they otherwise they wouldn't be anonymous. So I'll just read right. this one. Question okay. says, um, would, the question is, would working as an autopsy assistant classify as clinical hours? Asking for a friend. Asking for a friend. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think so. Um, I think that that, in that case, the patient is not living. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think clinical really emphasizes the notion that you are participating with a physician in a setting where you uh, experience patients and families or whatever. And, uh, and so I think that, would definitely be um, a healthcare environment, sort of, but I would say not on clinical. That would okay. be my first thought about that. Yep. I mean, it sounds fascinating if you if you could stomach it. <laughs> yeah, and especially if you're thinking that that's the line of work you'd like to get into. Right. Um, right. Right. But agreed. Real, usually, when we're talking about clinical, we're talking about interacting with patients right. and. There's not a lot of interaction. Well, hopefully not. If there is, there's something definitely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> if there is, let's get that patient out of the morgue and back upstairs. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's a good question, though. I definitely understand yeah. like oh, why that would be asked. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see as other questions come in. So somebody asks... Uh, does paramedic school count as an extracurricular? It was 2,500 hours of training. Um, extracurricular. Well, it's certainly extracurricular to your college environment. So, yeah. Sure. Um, I would say that, that in that way, it's extracurricular. Yeah. Now, within itself, it's curricular you know, in terms of what they're doing at the paramedic school, mm -hmm. but relative to their pre, your pre-med pathway. Yeah. I think it's not, it, it would be considered um, extracurricular. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. 
Well, it looks like questions are a little slow today. So while we're waiting for a few more to come in, you know what I'd love to hear from you is we're coming to the end of the uh, 2020 MCAT season. And something that's been announced is that there'll be um, a sample MCAT exam available for free in late October. Uh -huh. But um, but no word on 2021 MCAT yet. And this comes up almost every week. I think we talked about it last week, but any guesses, any insights into uh, what the 2021 MCAT and application process is going to look like? You know, to me, it it all depends on what happens with COVID. Um, yep. it, hap it You know, it depends on when a vaccine comes up and uh, I don't see anything changing until that happens. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if, you know, kind of what we've been led to believe is perhaps in the spring there'll be a vaccine. If that's the case, it's going to take a while for that vaccine to be manufactured and to get it to the public. So I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be tight in my view. And, uh, so, you know, you never can guess kind of what WMC is going to do with uh, with the MCAT. But but in terms of the application cycle, I just wonder if a lot of uh, medical schools are seeing that this uh, virtual interviewing, for example, has worked out pretty well. Uh, they may stick with it or give it as an option. So, yeah. you know, we'll see. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a good point, right? I mean, I think a lot of people are starting to think ahead to next year, but a lot of this oh, yeah. year still needs to unfold. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. All right, we've got a question we can post. So this is a longish one. A student asks, do admissions, I think they meet admissions committees, do they ever get to the point in an application where they say, quote, this student has too many W's, F's, end quote, and decide they're not a fit for their school? Or can a really strong upward trend help the student's case? For example, a really bad first two years undergrad and then a really strong finish. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we talk about this a lot about trajectory and, uh, and their tr the trend. And, uh, and so I, I definitely think that, a, that the scenario that the student creates, uh, the example, is, uh, is a really good one that, you know, it's not unusual for students to have bad freshman year or even a bad first two years and then recover and do really well in the last two years. Mm -hmm. um, now, so I think in that case, no, an admissions committee doesn't just automatically wipe it off and say, no, we're not going to deal with this student. They're really going to look closely at that, the trend. And I think the MCAT becomes very important uh, for a student in that circumstance where uh, they want to see um, what's the real story here? And obviously, when you get to uh, the last two years in college, you're dealing with upper level coursework, particularly in the sciences, where uh, the material is much more difficult. And uh, so I, I would definitely say uh, that, yes, um, admissions committees look very carefully at all that. And I would say no, that they don't ever get to the point where they say, well, this student has too many Fs, particularly if they're in, the, in their early years. Now, I would like to say a couple of words about Ws. And th these are what, what we call withdrawals or uh, dropping a class. Anything mm -hmm. that shows up on your transcript as a withdrawal or a drop. 
And what medical schools do get concerned about when it comes to withdrawals or drops is that if they, if this is a trend, so if, in other words, if every semester uh, there's a drop or two, and what it says to them is that a student signs up for a bunch of classes and then they withdraw or they drop from, from a class or two. And if this is a trend, uh, then that becomes very concerning. They begin to question what does this mean in terms of the student? Is the student not able to fulfill what they needed to do or wanted to do? Uh, are they, you know, what's happening with all these withdrawals? And particularly if there's semester after semester, uh, if there's one withdrawal or two over the course of your entire uh, undergraduate career, then that's not a problem. But if it's every semester or there's just, you know, once a year there's there's these drops or withdrawals, then that can be very concerning to an admissions committee. So be careful about signing up for uh, courses that um, that you are not don't just don't overload yourself. Um, and, and I think sometimes students do this trying to game it and they say, well, I'm going to sign up for 18 hours or 20 hours or whatever. And then I'm going to see which classes I like and which professors I really get involved with and all that. And then I can drop, you know, a class or two, uh, that semester. And that's not a wise thing to do because it does show up on your transcript and it can be a, a real red flag, uh, to an admissions committee if you do that consistently. Yep. Yeah, it definitely gets back to a theme I've heard you speak about over and over, which is part of why there's such a weight towards the undergrad GPA is it's not just about the standard curriculum. It's about showing the ability to work over a long, sustained period of yes, time. That's right. right. Not can you crunch it out for one semester or four semesters, but for several years, can you yes. do hard work and maintain yeah. a pretty consistent level of result? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. Cool. All right. So follow-up questions specific to your Texas expertise. Student asks, for Texan applicants, is it futile to apply to out-of-state schools? Assuming they don't have strong ties in other states? Uh, no. I, so the, my, my understanding of this question is that the student is a Texan and that they are considering applying to schools outside of Texas. I think so. And, uh, and no, I don't think so. I think you have to be careful which, with which schools you're applying to and know what their residency requirements are for their state if, if, if it's a public school. And some private schools have uh, also have some restrictions on uh, students for the, from, from their own state. But no, I, don't, I, I, I do not think it's futile. And I think a smart student uh, would, if you're a Texan, a smart student would apply to every school in Texas uh, and then would identify a, a handful of schools outside of Texas that they're interested in and, uh, you know, if, if they are interested in schools outside of Texas and then apply to those as well. And now there are some school, there are some students in Texas who will only apply to Texas schools, which is also fine. We have a lot of medical schools in Texas. Uh, they are very much, um, the restriction by the state is 90% test 
Texas residents in these schools. And so it really benefits Texans quite a bit. So, but I definitely think uh, for a Texas applicant to apply outside the state is not futile. So the answer to the question is no. Okay. Yeah. And I think it gets at sort of a bigger question that we've covered a few times before, which is um, applying out of state. The general rule of thumb, there are some variations by school by state, but mostly if you're applying out of state, you should be looking at private schools. Because yeah. although what we just described with Texas is a little bit more, like that rule's a little bit more extreme, all state schools or nearly all state schools are um, are sort of funded in a way that they need to take some in-state applicants. Yes, absolutely. That the majority of their class has to be in-state residents. Right. Correct. Yes. All That's right. Exactly Let's right. see. Next question. Got some more coming in. Will ADCOM's question if an applicant is more suited towards a different field, like policy or law, for example, if they list a lot of activities unrelated to medicine, but that they're passionate about? No. Um, I think that the medical schools, the, the admissions committees like to see broadness uh, in their applicants mm -hmm. and interests that are outside of medicine. Um, you know, whether that's, you know, you're playing a, you know, the drums in a band or you're, uh, as you say here in this question, uh, like policy and law, for example, which can fit very well with, with medicine. There are, there are programs that have MDJD, uh, schools that have MG, MDJD programs. Um, so I think the, the key here is if you're passionate about it, then involve yourself in it. And even if it's not related to medicine or doesn't have an obvious connection to medicine, admissions committees are not going to sort of hyper question that. Now, it could come up in an interview mm -hmm. uh, where, the, where an interviewer might say, hey, tell me a little bit about your interest in, you know, policy and law or uh, whatever. And I see that you've done a lot of stuff in that area. You know, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. But in and of itself, I don't think that that is a is an automatic red flag for medical schools now right now if your personal statement is all about policy and law now then that could be a, yeah yeah that could be a problem exactly. <laughs> exactly i don't want to be a doctor i want to be a lawyer my parents are making me do this please don't take me yeah. i've seen you know you laugh we, we laugh you have about that, that right yes i've had i've had uh i've had personal <laughs> statements that basically said something very similar to that just one time out of the many, many thousands. Correct. That's correct. <laughs> All right. Next one. Uh, is it a bad idea to get a letter of rec now from professors if you graduated in May? I fear if I wait until the spring, they won't be able to speak as well about my presence in the classroom activities. So uh, this is a good question. And this is really a question about timing and about um and about contact with your the faculty that you're getting letters from. So first of all, I think if you graduated in May and you're doing a, a, a gap year, you keep in touch with that professor throughout the year. You email them, hey, this is what is going up with me, going on with me. Or if you have access to being able to go by their office, uh, if you're still in the community or whatever, uh, even a phone call uh, could be you know, uh, a good idea, but definitely emails to just keep them up to date with whatever uh, you think, whatever, whatever's going on with you, I think is a really good idea. 
I don't like the idea of a letter being too far in advance. I, I always say that the letter should have the date on the letter should be the same year as the year you're applying. So if you're applying in the 2020, you know, if you're applying in 2021 for the 2022 application year, then I think you have to um, have a letter that has on that um, the date of the same year. Otherwise, it it can look a little quirky when you have you're applying in 2021 and the the, the letters dated 2020 uh, right. or something like that. So I think it's best just to wait, keep in touch with them, um, and let them know what's going on with you. When you get to the you know when you get within a, a month or so of uh, of wanting to ask them for a letter of recommendation send them your personal statement, send them a resume just to update them, you know, mm-hmm. relative to, to what you're doing. And uh, they're not going to forget you if you, if you keep in touch with them, they're not going to forget. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I think the root of this question, which is I'm afraid they're going to kind of lose pulse on me is absolutely right. It's yeah. just that rather than asking early, we're suggesting help them keep pulse on you. Yes. Um, This is like such a tiny detail, but I've seen so many students get burned. So I'll share it Um, as someone who's advised a lot of pre-meds, but also as someone who's written a lot of letters of recommendation, a lot of, especially if you do like school committee letters, they get really like stickler about obviously hand signed signatures. Yeah. You know, like I e-sign all the time and I've had letters rejected for that. Yeah. so my, yeah. my friendly tip that I'm adding on to Dr. Scott's very good advice is when you're sending the resume or the CV or your LinkedIn profile or whatever updates you're sending, include a note that tells them, by the way, can you please print this and sign this by hand? Yeah. yeah. Um, blue ink is great. Then there's no question. Yeah. No, you're oh. exactly right. It's a, it's a big deal. And uh, I know at TMDSAS in Texas, we we required there to be a, 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 a handwritten signature. And uh, if, it, if it didn't come with one, it, it would get rejected. And we would uh, put it back on the, on the applicant. But also, Team DSAS, we would contact the recommender too and say, hey, we need this you know, to be hand signed. And, and we would walk them through it. There's some fa- there are some particularly older faculty who are not as well versed in technology and uh, we would see this often with dentists who were writing a dental letter for a pre-dental student mm-hmm. and uh, they would have no clue. And we would actually have to get on the phone with them and say, go to your desktop. Do you see? And, and occasionally they would say, what, what do you mean when you say desktop? You're talking about my desk or what are you talking about? And so, you know, it, it, we would be all bless their hearts, you know, but. Uh, but yeah, sign the signature definitely, and and I agree with you. You know, uh, encouraging the faculty to to recognize that that's important is, is, is good. Yeah, and it's funny. It, like I said, it was a small detail, and yet we've just gotten a fault question. Somebody says it adds so much extra overhead. Why? Do you know why that's important? It's all about verifying authenticity, and okay. uh, it, it is. You would be surprised to know that. There are uh, forged letters every year. Um, students forge letters. Uh, it, it's not. It's not 
uh, typical, but it's also not rare. And so uh, that is important. And that's one way where a, a, a medical school or these application services can know, yeah, this is an authentic uh, letter. We've, we've had in the past students who went to such a, uh, such a degree as they created a, a letterhead mm-hmm. uh, for, a, for a clinic and uh, wrote a letter. And when we tried to verify it, we discovered that clinic doesn't exist. It's a, t- a complete fabrication. So it's really, you know, it's unfortunate that we have to go to that level, but that is, you know, and like I said, this is not, this is not something that happens a lot, thank goodness, but it does occur. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real shame. Um, When we're talking about a career where ethics are paramount, that's a bummer, but it also then kind of speaks to why people are checking. Um, And obviously all systems have loopholes and workarounds. Um, you know, that's part of why you also include contact info because yes, you know, right. it's not too now, hard to Google a professor and then call them. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I do see the day, you know, hopefully in, in not too long where, where the, the application services will figure out a way to, to do this in, in a way that doesn't provide such a, a, a great degree of effort, both for the student and for the recommender. Um, yeah, so, somebody just commented. It sounds like they're punishing everyone for a few people who are going to try to figure out a way to cheat. Well, yeah. they actually wrote your, but I'm sure you guys who are listening and watching understand that this isn't a map thing, right? It's a central application service thing, right? And yeah, but some of know, their systems are still a little paper based. So as as Scott just yeah. said, with yeah. time, some of that might come up to speed with electronics and security, and that that would be great. But in well, the meantime. It's what it yeah. is. And, and to that question, to that comment from the one of the viewers, you know, the comment is you're punishing everyone for for the few people who are going to figure out a way to cheat anyway. That's what laws are all about. That's what speeding laws are about. That's what every law we have in, in, in any society is based on the fact that not everybody's going to do it, but a few people are. But we have to have laws to. Uh, so that's a little philosophical off topic, but. Just wanted to say, yeah, I agree, but that's the, the whole system of rules that we have in modern society is based on the fact that some people are going to do it anyway. Well, while we're talking about society, let's dig into this topic. Okay, our student says, I also just started as a clinic escort at Planned Parenthood. Is this too controversial to be placing on my application? I am very passionate about reproductive rights. Uh, as you might guess, I've got a lot of thoughts here, but I want to hear yours, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I don't think it's too uh, controversial. Uh, I think you have to be you. When you're filling out your application, you have to be you. And if you're passionate about reproductive rights and you are passionate about what you're doing at Planned Parenthood, then you put it on there. And I will say to you uh, that if a medical school rejects you because of that, you don't want to go to that medical school. So you be you, you put what you're passionate about on your application and you talk about it in a way that makes sense and is uh, 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 straightforward. And I, I would say it would be a tragedy if you did hesitate putting it on there uh, because that this is all about you and who you are. And, and if you're passionate about that, you, you go for it. That would be my feeling. 100% agree. Yeah. 
Yeah. You got to do you. And that's a great, yeah. that's great, great experience that you're yeah. getting. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, don't short yourself the chance to tell them about everything you're going to learn. Oh, Make sure exactly. you're taking notes. That's what the reflection box and map yep. is for. That's you right. know, come home from those sessions and write down what happened. You know, obviously HIPAA compliant, but reflect on what you learned and saw. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Here's a really specific one. So I don't know how much you're going to dig into it, but it gets at the heart of some good questions. Um, student says, could you speak to what UT Southwestern Adcoms really focus in on for their candidates? Um, well, you know, I think that every school has its own mission and Southwestern does, as, as every medical school does, have, have a sense of what their mission is and what they're looking for, what they know about applicants that have been successful in, in their curriculum. And so they're looking for a profile of students that they feel like are going to be successful at their school. They're going to be looking for um, students who add diversity to the class. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of goals that, um, in, the, in the admissions process of what they're trying to do. Uh, I'd prefer not to, you know, speak specifically about one particular school because I think that it, probably not appropriate at this setting, but I definitely think that uh, every school has a sense of what they're looking for. And, uh, and they really focus in on, this is where um, secondary applications are very important because it really tells the, the school um, a lot about specific things they're wanting to know about. That's why they have a secondary application. Uh, mm -hmm. that is beyond just the primary, which is general for everyone. So I think that, you know, you look carefully at the secondary application questions that are asked, and you can get a, 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 a kind of a good idea of sort of what they're looking, you know, analyze the questions. What do you think that question is about? Some schools have small, you know, very limited secondaries. Some schools have no secondaries, but some schools have a pretty extensive number of questions on there on their secondary applications. And so really analyze what those questions are. And I think you can get a better idea of what they're, what they're really wanting to know or what they're looking for. Yeah. I think that's a great point. It seems like a lot of students see secondaries as like a hurdle to jump and it is, but it's also in the same way that an interview is a two way street. The secondaries are, it's telling you a lot about what they're looking for. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're looking at UC Riverside, you're going to probably see a question about serving people right in the Inland Empire because yeah. that's their stuff. So yeah. if you don't like the idea of living in Southern California, but two hours from the beach, UCR may not be for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's their thing. <laughs> um, so those that's secondaries right. give you those clues. Yeah, they do. They really um, do. The other thing I would mention, and Scott, you can chime in on this since you you have more admissions expertise specific to med where I have, you know, some pre-college and pre-med In the pre-college world. One of the things that we try to remind our students is even if you've got friends or siblings who got in a year or two before ad comms are made up of humans and the members change year to year. Yeah. So you might know the mission and the vision of the school and their school values, but it's not like those are just like, robots. I mean, if it were, we wouldn't need people on admissions committees. We would just right. do it all electronic. So right. what they're looking for could change year to year, person to person. Um, and I know 
that's, I, I really respect why this person is asking. I'm not trying to like shame the question, but we want certain answers, even if the answer that is certain is sort of bad news, because we would almost rather just like, no. Right. But the truth is there is uncertainty and we just have to live with that. Yeah. So you're not going to be given a checklist that this makes you a fit for UT Southwestern or it doesn't. Cause I mean, that, that would almost yeah. feel better. Like it would be yeah. a bummer to it's bummer if you were given a list and you didn't fit, but it's then at least you could stop worrying about it. Right. But instead you just have to live with the uncertainty um, but yeah, secondary essays are one way to clue yourself in a little. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let's see what else we've got. Okay. Talking budget here. I'm on a budget and I don't know if I'm ready to apply. By June of next year, I'll have about 200 hours of clinical exposure and 1500 hours of research. Almost all of that dedicated to one research. I graduated in May with a 3.8 GPA, two majors, chem and math. I'm currently doing a master's in biomaterials and I want to get an MD PhD. Well, sounds like we should have you on Am I Ready so we can really yeah, do right? this. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. You know, this person who wrote this big long comment didn't actually ask a question. I guess the question is, Am I ready to apply? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, because he yeah. said, I don't know if I'm ready to apply, particularly if he's applying to MD PhD, he or she's applying to MD PhD programs. Mm -hmm. Then, um, you know, I think the MD-PhD programs look much differently at applicants than just the strict uh, MD program admissions committees. And every school kind of does their own thing in terms of how they do MD-PhD admissions or dual degree admissions things. And so okay. I think that's... Yeah, the person just sent a follow-up. They're asking if they should take a gap year and accumulate more experience. Um, I think I would... I don't know. It, it depends a little bit. Like I've said this before in terms of um, MD-PhD programs. What they are looking for specifically is not necessarily what you've done. I mean, that's important. But they're looking for, do you understand what you have been involved in? In right. other words, the research that you're doing, do you get it? Do you really understand any of it? And and I know that sounds pretty superficial, but I think that MD-PhD programs are really looking for uh, students who are going to be able to do well in their program, but who are going to be able to become uh, independent investigators in a, in, a, mm -hmm. in a laboratory setting. And in order to become a, a primary investigator, you've really got to understand what's going on in that lab. Right. And uh, not every student gets to that point. And so... I, it's a little difficult to answer this question without knowing more about the specific circumstances. But what sure. I would what I would encourage the student to do is is uh, seek out um, seek out some assistance and advice from a PH, MD PhD program. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully, there's one near you where you could uh, kind of ask some some questions of their program and and find out what they think in terms of your experience and, 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 and stuff like that. But uh, it's a little difficult uh, in this setting to analyze it um, a little bit. I agree. Carefully. And we are going to do more and more Am I Ready? So for the student asking, if you're interested, you can always apply to that. Or maybe you have and you're waiting for us to follow up. Right. I've got some students to respond to. Um, right. But right. yeah, in, in GMAT test prep, we talk about data sufficiency problems. So there's like math problems you solve. And then there's also math problems where they just give you a bunch of data and then say, 
did I give you enough data to solve this problem? And I think with this question, we have insufficient data to solve the yeah, problem. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, exactly. But yeah, to, to Dr. Scott's point, a lot of it is going to be not your what, but your so what. So yeah, yeah, reflect absolutely. on that research. Yeah. You know, if we were at um, a socially distanced cocktail party with our masks on and six feet of distance, and I said, hey, tell me what you do in the lab all day, and I knew nothing about science, could you explain it to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'd be a good start. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, move on to a question about school lists. Yeah. Okay. When building a school list, how would you recommend determining if problem-based learning is a learning style you'd be comfortable doing? PBL is very tr different from traditional undergrad work, and therefore I'm not sure if it would work for me. But I guess I've never even tried it before. Yeah. Well, PBL is very uh, uh, common these days in medical uh, curricula. Um, it's, um, you know, essentially it's small group uh small group learning where you're in a group and you're given a problem. It's, it can also be, you know, a, a deviation of this is case-based learning where you're given a, a case and, uh, and you're, you have to sort of analyze the case and what are all the issues involved in the case and different members of the. So what I would say relative to the, the question is um, you really have to um, analyze how, you learn. And uh, if you learn better in a classroom setting, you know, listening to a lecture, which is, is, is uh, still, there are still lectures in medical school and uh, often they're streamed. And so you don't even have to be in the room. Uh, you'll be able to, uh, to, to watch it online or, or uh, to stream it when you're on the treadmill or whatever. I've seen that often. Um, so you have to analyze what what is what works for you in terms of learning. Uh, is it, it do you learn better independently? Do you learn better uh, with a group of people? Do you learn better in a, in a classroom setting? Do you learn better from reading the textbook instead of listening to lecture? Or do you even read the textbook and you you prefer to listen to lecture? I mean, you have to under, understand that whatever you do well in undergrad you're going to have to figure it out all over again in medical school because the uh, what worked in undergrad may not work in medical school for you. Right. And so I would say you have to, um, you have to kind of learn a little bit about um, looking at the curricula at the medical schools, but I wouldn't be afraid of, of problem-based learning. I think there's a lot of good parts of it, uh, particularly if you're the kind of person who likes to, uh, involve yourself with other students in a small group setting and, and, and work together and go to study groups and stuff like that. I, I think, you know, that's a lot of what problem-based learning is, uh, is, is that kind of uh, small group experience. So I would look mm -hmm. at that and, and not be afraid of it. Yeah, it's a good point. And, um, Something I've seen, this is all purely anecdotal, but just, you know, I follow on social media a lot of students who are in med school. And something I hear a lot of them say is, I have to change my study skills depending yep. on the term. Yep. Right. So yep. even if, you know, you get to med school and you think, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I figured it out. It might be that you figured it out for gross anatomy and then you get to cardio and it's something completely different. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
So staying nimble and being open to learning lots of different ways is going to serve you really well, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So student says, I scribe for a practice where I spend my time rounding with two physicians as a 50-50 split. That's good. Good work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I plan to ask for a letter of recommendation next year, and I wanted to know if there were any differences that will be seen by an adcom to have a letter co-written by both, or if I should just ask one of them for a letter. All right. So she works with two doctors. So she mm -hmm. asks them to, to team write a letter or just ask one to write a letter. Or maybe I mean, I think it'd be great if they would co-write the letter together. I think, you know, that would be awesome if you're, if you're doing the scribe service on a 50, 50 split so that you're doing it kind of half with one and half with the other. And if they're willing to write you a, a letter uh, co-written by the two of them, that, that sounds wonderful to me. Uh, I mean, it would, it would have a lot of power and that it's coming from two different positions that you've worked with. Uh, they obviously are going to be able to say a lot about you because they've worked directly with you uh, over a long period of time. And so I would say, you know, I would say ask them and see, see what they're willing to do. Just, you know, just be honest with them. I, I'd like to have a letter. I, I, I don't want to have to choose one or one of the other of you. Uh, would you guys be willing to do a, a, a co-written letter from the two of you? Yep. And I think that would be great. Score. Yeah. That's a right. good problem to have, let me tell yeah, you. Yeah, it is. Wow. <laughs> Too many choices. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you mentioned earlier holding off on asking a letter writer too early. Yes, we did. Uh, the student says, I asked a professor for a letter this past summer. Won't be applying until next cycle. The professor already asked me for the information to write the letter. Um, it surprised me a bit. I have not yet updated my personal statement. I'll be a reapplicant. Do you recommend trying to revise my personal statement and send the information other anyways, or just keeping in touch with the professor? And then your question gets cut off because it was kind of long, but I think we're getting the gist. Yeah. So you've already gotten a yes, but the student's been at, told to send some stuff to follow up on that yes. I would just go back to the professor and say, hey, I sort of jumped the gun and uh, I, I, I probably need to wait until after the first of the year uh, to get the letter. And we're, we're not talking about a, a huge amount of time between now and January. And right. uh, and so I would probably just go back to him and say, hey, I'm working on my personal statement, adjusting it a little bit. I'm also wanting to make sure uh, everything goes smoothly this cycle. So uh, I'd like to wait until January before I get this information to you. Is that OK? And then, you know, they should be all right with that, you would think. So, yep. yeah. All right. So sorry if this is a silly question. Oh, no, that's what we're here for. Ask that's away. Right. That's right. Uh, I went to a community college for three years, and then I transferred to a university for two years. Is my last year at community college counted as sophomore, junior year? And is this, ah, okay. So, like, class standing when you're right. at multiple schools for five right. years. Right, right. So I know how AMCAS handles this, but I don't know if Tim, Tim Dust Sauce Texas does it the same. Yeah, I mean, basically what, what TMDSAS does is, is it's up to you to make that determination. You know, you, mm -hmm. you indicate uh, they want to know uh, for each class, were you a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior when you took that class? Or were you a post-bac mm -hmm. or whatever? And you, you just make that call. And so, you know, traditionally, what what is what traditionally is considered 
freshman is up to 30 hours, 30 to 60 hours is a sophomore, 60 to 90 is a junior, and then anything above 90 is a, is a senior. That's sort of the traditional way to kind of uh, deal with it in terms of the credit hours and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but, uh, and so I was on the five-year plan too. So hooray for five-year people. And uh, <laughs> I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do and at the time, and I was pretty immature too. So it took me a while to figure things out. As, yeah, that sort of assumes I still have stuff figured out, but I, sometimes I don't. But anyway. <laughs> So that's a whole nother topic about my psychosis and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, but uh, yeah, what I would say is, uh, uh, you know, you're just going to make that call for each class and you'll say, I took this as a, as a, uh, a freshman or a sophomore or, you know, whatever. Now, mm -hmm. what I would say about community colleges is typically community colleges only have up to up through the sophomore level of, of classes. So even though you spent three years at the community college, you were really only taking, uh, unless it's a community college, there are some community colleges that through a, a variety of ways offer bachelor's degrees uh, because of connections with senior institutions, uh, et cetera. But uh, you could um, indicate um, freshman, sophomore on those community college hours and then um, junior, senior on your, on your university hours. That, that's another possibility. Yeah. Yeah. MCAS is pretty similar. They, they have slightly like they have ranges. So they'll say like your freshman is zero to 30 and then your sophomore is 30 to 60 or 65. Like they do some sort yeah, of, yeah. Yeah. but then the fine print says you can make some determinations. I know with MCAS, the big thing is don't go back. So, like, if you really feel like you ended up taking junior level courses by your third year at community college, then it's still junior, maybe senior for your transfer university. Right. And that does mean that some students have um, disproportionately yeah. large senior years. Yes, absolutely. You know, that go on for many, many credits. Yeah. And that's that's just part of the way the application unfolds. Like, yeah. that's that's right. That's yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. All right. And that, that was not a silly question at all. By not way. at all. No. <laughs> a student says, I had trouble finding a job due to COVID. Yep. Uh, I was able to get a job as a medical scribe for an FNP. I've been there some months. Would it be helpful to get helpful to my application to get a letter of rec from the FNP? Should I look for a position working under physicians instead? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, let me see what I would think about that. Um, so, okay, ahead. Well, I would say not necessarily. So the question is, should I look for a position working under physicians instead? No, you're in a clinical setting. You're working with a mid-level clinical provider, a, a family nurse practitioner, and you're really... Um, uh, I, I think you're getting a lot of good experiences or I, I'm assuming that you're getting a lot of good experiences in that, in that practice. And, and it's like we've said consistently, you know, you have found something that a lot of people would die for in terms of getting a job in a clinical setting like this. I don't think you should look for anything else right now. Just keep, keep moving forward with it. 
you, you it would be a good idea for you to do some physician shadowing if you can right. or uh, some uh, some uh, volunteer type work uh, with physicians uh, themselves but this is very good clinical experience and so I wouldn't uh, I, I wouldn't be afraid to keep it and I also wouldn't be afraid to get a letter of recommendation from the nurse practitioner I think that would be fine Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking is if you were trying to make this shadowing only, because um, I know some scribe jobs are really behind the scenes where there aren't right. patient interaction, right? right. It's still a good experience right. no matter what. But if the focus was on shadowing nurse practitioner, it's not the same job, right? But right. similar. Right. But right. Um, but yeah, if you're talking about patient interaction, it's a great job. Yeah, I agree completely. Um. Oh, someone's doing a follow-up to our five-year plan question. They okay. write piggyback, which is very helpful. I think I'm understanding your answer. If you've been an undergrad since 2005 with nearly 200 hours, are you just a senior for years and years? Yep. Yes, that's what we were saying. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> it happens. Yep. Yep. Sometimes you also get longish freshman years because some people will call pre-high school freshman, mm -hmm. although there is a pre-high school designation, yeah. but senior is the one that tends to go real long just because, right. you know, not right. everybody finishes up in eight nice, neat semesters. Or, you know, if you change your major and that that propels you into other classes that you've got to take, you know, there could be a lot of circumstances that they dictate why there'd be a lot of uh, senior level hours. So, yeah, sure. but I think you have a good understanding. Uh, the, 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 the questioner does. Yeah. We probably got time for one or two more. I'll see if some popcorn is popping here. Oh, I love popcorn. <laughs> In my mind, the questions are always popcorn kernels, right? <laughs> right. It's slow at the beginning while people are logging on and formulating right. their thoughts. Right. And then you get the big frantic pop. And then you start to get those like three or four seconds between pops. Like I should probably turn the burner off, but it's not quite done popping. Yeah. <laughs> now you're old school. If you, you're old school if you're talking about burners for popcorn. Oh yeah, I, I'm talking about I microwave. Always popcorn on the stove. Oh microwave really? Popcorn is not nearly as good. As oh, stove it's not. Popcorn. You're exactly right. It's not as good. All right. Where can you stand out in a non-traditional way on your application? We know GPA and MCAT scores are important, but what areas really make an application stand out? Well, this is, uh, you know, I talk a lot about, and this is, you know, certainly important for non-traditional students, but uh, also important for tr traditional students. It's the, it's the, it's the so what part. That's how your application stands out. It's not about the, what you did. Everybody's done things. The what part is going to be on there. The thing that differentiates, in my view, a good applicant from a great applicant is the so what part. Do you really talk about in your application what you got out of these experiences, the, the value of these things, how they were meaningful to you? That is where it really, it really makes a difference. And that's the way you can differentiate your application from others is really diving deeply into why was this meaningful to you? Why was, what did you learn out of these experiences? And, uh, and the, the deeper you can get into that kind of stuff, 
in your application, the better off you're going to be. And, the, and the, the deeper the admissions committee is going to really look at it with, with, uh, with keen eyes and, 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 uh, and ears. So I, I I'm definitely going to print up t-shirts that say, so what? Yep. I was just looking to see. I'm like, do I already have a banner made that says it's not the wood? So it's the so wood. Yeah. I gotta make one of those banners. Yeah, right. Um, we're just gonna have it like scrolling across the screen the whole time. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Definitely. it's funny because I think we just got a similar question that might have what's well, actually a different question that might have a similar answer. Feeling very stressed, realizing my GPA, cumulative and post back are lower than what I thought. I'm sorry you're feeling stressed. I did a 30 credit post back DIY. I'm prepping for the MCAT tips. Wow. So this is another kind of am I ready sort of question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I definitely think that um, if if your if your cum- cumulative GPA is and, and you the the questioner doesn't really tell us what low man means you know mm-hmm. are you talking about a 3.6 or are you talking about a 3.4 are you talking about a 2.5 you know i th- there's really not enough information here to, to, to we're not saying a, you have to post that we're just yeah saying, yeah i'm just saying there's not just not like a whole lot to, to go <laughs> on here um but if you're if you're post back what what concerns me about this this, this question is when you say post back is lower mm-hmm. uh that's that's a concern for me because what that says is the GPA was low originally. <clears throat> They've gone into a do-it-yourself post-bac program, and it's not as high as they thought it was going to be. And so uh, I would say this is a little bit of a concern. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I would say this is the kind of question <clears throat> that would be good for a um, for an Am I Ready uh, episode. And uh, but also this is a good question, you know, mapped. We offer um, services on advising and and this is a very good kind of thing where a student might be interested in doing a a one shot advising uh, call uh, with me to really talk deeply about the the circumstances here. Yeah. So I think we have an update, but I I don't think it's probably. Yeah. Yeah, we don't want to. I I appreciate this person sharing a little more data, but we don't want to, like, well, I guess you're you're anonymous, but still, um, right. yeah, right. it sounds like you did have an upward trend. It just didn't really affect your cum that much. Um, so so yeah, there could be some more in depth here. Yeah, um, you asked for tips. To your point, your MCAT's not done yet. My tip would be, you've now had two two different scholastic experiences where your result wasn't as high as you wanted, I think you need to reflect on that, right? So sometimes when that happens, people will tell me, well, I don't think it really reflects my ability because of XYZ circumstances. And I'm not saying XYZ to like be dismissive because it could be a lot of things, right? It might be I had a crazy long commute to and from school, or it might be my grandma was sick and my mom works all the time, so it's really my job to take care of grandma, right? Like all things that are valid. But then my question is, where are you with the circumstances now? Are you signed up for an in-person MCAT class and it's also a long compute? Or are you going to try to take an online MCAT class while you're at home also taking care of this sick relative? Like you need to think about yeah. those circumstances yeah, because um, 
and a higher MCAT isn't a magical cure, but it might help offset some of the yeah. GPA. Yeah. But you've just got out of a period where you weren't quite getting the results you wanted. So what can you do this time to really turn that around? And sometimes right. that means giving yourself some really tough love. Right. Um, and sometimes it means having conversations with family who don't get it, you know, that don't want you to study somewhere else. I mean, it's really hard to study somewhere else right now, right. but you know, they think you should be home studying, but then, you know, you're getting interrupted by the TV or the toddler or whatever. Right. Like you may have to think, really hard about how you're going to change your game plan. Um, so that would be my tip is it, it's definitely not time to give up hope. It is time to assess yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, I mentioned the uh, advising services and, and, you know, just to, to, to be clear, we, we do offer advising services through MAPT, MAPT.com. Uh, one of the uh, top uh, links is, uh, is for services and you can see everything that we do from in terms of editing for personal statements or one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one advising, uh, application advising for the entire cycle. So there's a variety of, of things on there that you can look at and, and hopefully find something that fits, fits your needs. All right. Good. Okay. Our question says they look forward to updating us with their MCAT results. Do yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, we'll take one more here and we'll probably wrap up for the evening. I'm currently a firefighter looking to apply next year for medical school. I'm non-traditional. I've been an EMT and then a paramedic and then now a firefighter all over the last 13 years. My grades in the past have not been good, but now I'm doing a post-bac. My sciences GPA will be a 3.01 with an upward trend of A's and B's. Do you think I need a graduate program? Well, you know, again, this is a, a little bit, uh, I, I think it's good if there's been an upward trend, that's a good thing. Um, I think, you know, obviously medical schools, I think medical schools tend to like non-traditional students and, and students that have a background, particularly like this student with, uh, with uh, you know, this is a very high intensity uh, career. Uh, that you're in. This is, uh, you know, whether you're EMT, paramedic, firefighter, I think these days most firefighters have to be EMTs anyway, and, and mm -hmm. even, you know, a lot of them even paramedics. And so, um, so I think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff there. And it would depend a little bit, I think, on what that post-bac GPA was, uh, that you that you talked about being doing postback stuff, and I know the cum is probably always going to be low, but we want to look at that trend, and we want to look specifically at that postback GPA to see this is this is much more uh, close to who you are now in the classroom than it was, you know, 13 years ago when you were in when you were a 18 year old straight out of high school. So, uh -huh. um, so I would say definitely this is uh, a good. Um, a good start and you, you seemingly got a lot of good stuff, but uh, uh, depends a little bit on, on some of the questions that, you know, we don't really don't know the information. So yeah. again, we're like, we're, we're, we're a little bit um, unable to kind of get too deeply into, into an answer that might be satisfying. Mm -hmm. This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.